when we talk about the Christian faith, and we talk about the Christian faith as a truth, as something that you believe in, we're, we're talking about what does it mean to be convicted, right? When we speak about conviction, there's something deep cut about that, something that, that anchors you in the heart and your beliefs that this, this doesn't move. When we talk about something like conviction, it's something that we all strive to have. All we, we strive to form. We want to chisel away at all the imperfection and make our conviction pure and strong. Conviction is not about what you're doing. Conviction, you know, isn't just like, I feel like this is right, so I'm going to do it. I'm going to, you know, I'm convicted that I should go out today, so I'm going to go out. I'm convicted that I should get boba. They're convicted that I should eat fries. Like these, these, there's these different convictions that we can say that we can use that language around. But true conviction is always about what's right and what's wrong. It's always about truth. It's about something that's more objective than what you're feeling at the moment. Conviction has to be based on truth because that forms, that should form our morality, that should form our ethics, that should form the way we think about this world. Conviction requires a bedrock truth, something that's foundational and unwavering. And while the world's opinion can change, and we can notice how the world's opinion has changed over and over again, conviction remains strong. And that's something that we want to see in our leaders, right? That's something we want to see in the people we follow. We like to see that they have indeed strong convictions. What does it mean for you to be convicted? <clears throat> Christ as our cornerstone. He is our bedrock foundation. He is our, indeed our conviction. And in our passage in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 to 13, we're going to come across a church that was convicted about the truth, a church that was able to stand on solid ground, a church that was unwavering in their faith for Christ. Turn me to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. Looking at verses 7 to 13, and we'll come across a church of Philadelphia, not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We're talking about Philadelphia, an ancient city, part of the Roman Empire. And the church of Philadelphia, just to give you some background before we get into our text. Uh, the Philadelphian church, they demonstrated a great faithfulness, a great um, endurance. For Christ. They expressed this conviction through the way they live. Philadelphia, the city, uh, it was founded in 189 BC, and it was founded by two brothers. Um, I think the stories kind of get mixed up about exactly which brother was the actual founder of the city. And so I'm just going to say it's two brothers. Uh, and these two brothers, their names are, if you're, if you're curious, is Eumenes and Adams. Right. And the reason why this is somewhat important or unique is because Philadelphia is a Greek word, two Greek words of brotherly love. That's what it means. It's brother and love put together, making Philadelphia. So brotherly love. And so we have here two brothers who founded the city. Right. And Philadelphia, uh, it was built as this pretty modern thinking city. Um, it was a center of Greek culture um, in the Greek language. Uh, it's 
what we like to call the, the culture, the Greek culture, what we like to call is a Hellenistic culture, Hellenistic. And so Philadelphia was almost like a missionary outpost uh, that really wanted to push Hellenism, the Hellenistic culture and language out to its surrounding areas. It wanted to teach people about these Greek philosophies, the, the Greek way of thinking that this is indeed the right way to live your life. So that's what Philadelphia was. It was this cultural center, pretty progressive for its time, pretty modern for its time. Other thing that Philadelphia was known for was that in 1817, an earthquake hit this region. And we talked about this earthquake uh, last time when I talked about the, when I talked about Sardis. And this earthquake hit this center, hit this place, but Philadelphia was the epicenter of this earthquake. In 1817, uh, when this earthquake hit, Philadelphia was at the center of it. So a lot of its cities, all of its foundations, all of its buildings were ruined, they were broken. And for years after this earthquake, the city experienced aftershocks, after aftershocks. You can imagine what it's like to live in a city where you just don't know when the next tremor is gonna hit you. Is it even worth it to rebuild anything? These are kind of the questions and uncertainty that the Philadelphians live with. And so you see how this city, it was both swarming with philosophical ideas. It was, it, it was just trying to push upon everyone that the Greek Hellenistic way to live. And so the church felt that. And the church stood under attack of the pressure of its society, of its culture, pushed, forced to, to conform to these ways. At the same time, because the city itself lived in uncertainty of the future because they don't know if the earthquake is going to hit them again, you can imagine also the church was trying to look for some kind of stability as well. Is this the place where they should be at to be Christians? Is this the place where they should build a church? And so they're looking for that stability. And what we'll see here is that the Philadelphian church, despite the outward pressure, the inward uncertainty, they stood on the solid ground. They stood upon the promises of Christ and they looked towards their future reward. And they had a strong conviction what they believed in. They had a strong conviction in Christ. And so this is what we'll see. Let me go ahead and read the passage for us. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 to 13. Here's, here's God's word. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia writes the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not. But lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. And they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour trial that is, going, that is coming on the, on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. 
the one who conquers. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We see here, looking first at verse 11, we see here the command given to this church, hold fast, hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. This is the command given by Jesus Christ to this church to hold fast to their conviction. And what we'll see here from the rest of this passage around it, we'll see how Christ offered five reasons why this church, this Philadelphian church, why you should hold fast to your convictions. First reason being that Jesus provides for us a permanent access. Permanent access. And we see this first and foremost in the first two verses here, verse 7 and 8. We see here a description of Jesus Christ. He is the Holy One. The one who stands apart from creation, the son of God himself. Jesus Christ is holy. He is different. He is unique. He is distinct. He is superior. Jesus Christ is the holy one, set apart. And he's also here described as the true one, the one who stands for truth. He is indeed the truth. He is pure. But when we say here that he is the true one, Jesus Christ also came down to this earth and he made a witness for God. He made a witness for his father. And so his testimony about God, about his father, is also true. It's infallible. You can't, you can't attack Jesus. You can't lawyer, lawyer him up. He has every defense. His words are true. He is indeed a true witness of God. And then comes an interesting phrase. It says here that Jesus is the one who has the key of David. The key of David. Now, what is that? What does it mean to have a key of David? Isn't David a person? What do you mean to have a key? What's, or is this talking about David's key? What is David's key? What is going on here? Well, this is an allusion. It's an Old Testament allusion to a man named Eliakim. And Eliakim was a steward over the king's household. And Eliakim, he was he was the head of the king's household. He was in charge. And so the, the, and, and the head of the king's household was important during this time. The head, of, the head of the household, he wasn't the king, so he didn't make the final decisions. But he's the one who determines who gets to see the king, right? Who gets to advise the king? Who gets to come in and make requests to the king? He held an important role of managing all that. And so if you knew Eliakim, if you're in his good favors, then you have access to the king. It's, he is indeed the gatekeeper, right? He is that friend that you want to have who has connections to all of these, you know, prominent names out there. You go to that friend, you, you try to butter him, him or her up so that you get access to, to his or her network of people. That's, this is who Eliakim was. He was the steward over the king's household. Turn me to Isaiah chapter 22. We'll, we'll take a look at this. Back in Isaiah chapter 22, 
looking at verse 20, just give you some context. God here is judging a man named Shebna, a man named Shebna. And Shebna was the, was the steward of the king's household. He was whom a liking was. But Shebna failed to uphold his character. He did not fulfill his duties properly. And so he failed. And so God was judging him. He's put, he's saying, Shebna, I'm going to remove you from your office. And then he's going to call a man named Elijah to take his place. And this is what God says. Starting in verse 20, Isaiah 22, verse 20 says, In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and I will bind your shash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. So we see here where Revelation is getting this reference from. This key of David is talking about who's in charge of giving access to the king. Who's the one who allows people to meet the king, to come before his throne. And back in Revelation, we see that it is Jesus holds the key of David. It is Jesus who manages the access to the Lord's throne. Jesus here is the better Elijah. He is indeed better. If we take a look still in Isaiah 22, right? As we keep reading, this is what this is what God continues to say about Elijah. Verse 23 says, and I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will be a throne of honor to his father's house. So what God is saying here is that the line of Elijah, the line of Elijah will continue on in this office. He will hold this role on and on as long as they fulfill it faithfully. Let's keep reading. Verse 24, and they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. And then verse 25 hits. The Lord says this, in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg, Elikim, that was fastened in a secure place will give way and it will be cut down and fall and the load that was on it will be cut off for the Lord has spoken in other words, the line of Lycan will one day fail. This line, his sons, we don't know how far down the line, we don't know how many generations, but the line will fail one day. We'll not be able to uphold this office, this important role as the head of the household, as a steward of the king's home. Fail. But Jesus Christ is the better Lycan. Jesus Christ, as we will see in Revelation, he holds this role forever. He holds it permanently. And he so he provides permanent access to God because Jesus Christ, as he says in John 14, 6, he is indeed the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Jesus holds the key of David permanently. 
this this gives us great hope because we come to know this Jesus the same way this church in Philadelphia came to know Jesus right Jesus says in verse 8 back in Revelation chapter 3 verse 8 he says I know your works Philadelphians I know your works and behold I have set before you an open door so Jesus knows their works Jesus knows their faithfulness, and he continues to open the door for them, continue to give them permanent access to God. What were these works? What, was, what did this look like for Philadelphia church? Well, it says here that, Jesus, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. We see here how this church displayed a strong conviction through small steps of faithfulness. They had little power. They were not large in size. They probably didn't have a strong voice, a great preacher, charismatic outlook. They didn't hold all these programs or events. They were just probably a small church, a few believers gathering together, just holding on to this precious truth that they had, trying to be faithful, to continue on, to endure, in a city like Philadelphia, a church like this may feel powerless, right? Because they Philadelphia was had this strong Hellenistic ideology. It was the current of the ways or felt probably felt like too much. They couldn't swim against this tide. It's too strong. They felt powerless. And yet this church remained faithful. They never denied Christ. Never denied his name. This church proved to be a faithful testimony of Jesus. With small steps, little power, they continue to hold on. I mean, is this true for most things in life? When we display just small steps of faithfulness, it, it shows us what we're convicted by. But if you just think about even just something as simple as like exercising, right? Just you want to reach one place and you have the strong belief you can get there, but you know you can't get there like in the next day. You have to take small steps slowly, day by day, increasing that way, running that extra mile. Just continue to go slowly and slowly to build yourself up. This church endured faithfully in small ways to remind all of us that faithfulness isn't about doing big things for God each day. It's about being faithful in all small things for God every single day. So Jesus here provides permanent access for this church because of their faithfulness. And they continue to hold on to that. Jesus then, going on to verse 9, he also shows us that he gives us sure victory. A sure victory. Because Around this church, there's these enemies constantly attacking the church, constantly trying to convince them that their way of thinking, their religion, their Christian God is not true. It's not who they should be following. It's not whom they should be worshiping. And the church's opponents wasn't just the Greek culture. What we see here is that the Christian, the church opponents were these Jewish unbelievers. They came from the synagogue of Satan, which we found out earlier in Revelation 
that this refers to the Jewish people, the Jewish unbelievers who did not like the, what the Christians were teaching. You see, these, these unbelievers, these Jewish unbelievers, they claim to be Jew, but were not. What that means is that they claim to be a person of God, the people of God, but they truly were not of God. They denied Jesus Christ, the Son of God. How can they be God's people then? They denied Christ. They are liars. They didn't see the truth. Their hearts were hardened against Christ. And so the church faced, faced this pressure to abandon their faith, both from the Greek culture around them, but also from the religious culture around them. Imagine how this two-pronged attack against the church be, can be so difficult. For some of you, you guys may be feeling that yourself. You guys get the ideology from school, from your professors, from your friends, and yet at home, maybe you're the only Christian at home, and now you're being pushed back against maybe with some more Asian religion and belief, and you get this two-pronged attack against your faith. In Christ, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to hold on to that truth, is it not? What we see here, we see here Jesus promised to them. He says, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. Jesus here will bring these Jewish unbelievers to recognize that the church is God's people. To recognize that they were wrong and this church was right. They were right to hold on to this truth, to hold on to their convictions. And what this all shows to us is that God is working. And the fact that God's bringing unbelievers to recognize this is nothing new. God said this throughout the Old Testament as well for Israel. In fact, what we see here is almost kind of a role reversal between Israel and the church. Because back in the Old Testament, Israel has promised that their enemies, the Gentiles, will come and bow for them. For instance, Isaiah uh, chapter 45, verse 14 says this, The wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, will come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over and chase and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. This is, this is what God promised to Israel, that these people, these unbelievers, these Gentiles will come and bow down and recognize Yahweh as God. Isaiah 60, 14, the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. And we see here in Revelation how this same promise to Israel is also promised to the church. The church and the enemies of the church will also come down and bow before them. Not only that, it's the Jews. These unbelieving Jews will come and recognize where they're wrong and how the church indeed is God's people. And indeed, God loves them. 
had Jesus not? This is, and this is not some kind of force bowing down. This is actually them coming to full repentance and understanding that their God is just much more greater, much more majestic. God's plans are just unfathomable. I just can't understand how they are no longer the right believers, churches, Gentiles, and yet they themselves come to submission to that. It's unbelievable to see how these roles got reversed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Our God works in these miraculous, wonderful ways, these mysterious ways that we can never truly fully understand. And what we see here is that this victory, this victory over the enemies of the church is not ours. We didn't overcome and bring these enemies to believe in what we believe. We didn't defeat them and say, ha, now believe in our God. This victory comes from Jesus Christ working in their hearts, showing them the truth. Jesus is the one who claims victory over them. And Jesus promises the church a sure victory. Which then leads to verse 10. We see an unwavering assurance. Jesus also promises an unwavering assurance of their faith, of their great reward in heaven. And the emphasis here in verse 10 is on their perseverance. Their faithful perseverance will be rewarded. And the church here endured. And so, and because they endured, says here, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, Jesus here promises to keep you from the hour trial that's coming on the whole world to try or to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, when we look at this, it, it seems like there's a condition here, right? If you keep my word, you know, if you do this, then I will keep you from this hour trial. And I want us to keep in mind that we see conditional statements like this throughout scripture. And I know for myself and for our church, we, we do teach the sovereignty of God. We teach, um, mostly Calvinistic theology here about salvation that, you know, is God who works salvation into our hearts. It is God who chose you and elect you. We are not saved by works, by any of that. We do not, we don't believe in salvation by works, but salvation by grace alone. And uh, we also believe that when you're saved, you will never lose your salvation. You never lose it. Once saved, always saved. But that does not remove the fact that we are to endure to the end. That that is an action that we are to do. That is a responsibility that we have as one who has been saved by God to endure to the end. That's why statements like this still appear here as a command for us, as an exhortation to us to follow. We are to continue to endure because we're not supposed to lay back. And say, cool, we're saved. I don't want to do anything anymore. But we are to endure faithfully, day by day, with small steps of faithfulness. The key to understanding this verse is recognizing that such an endurance displayed here by the church cannot happen without the firm belief that Jesus indeed will protect you. That Jesus indeed has provided you an unwavering assurance of your salvation. 
without that kind of hope in Christ, we can't endure. See how it starts with Jesus and it builds into our response to his saving grace in our life. Now, Revelation 3, 10, it's actually, a, it's actually kind of a controversial verse. Um, not controversial, it's just debated a lot about because um, all the different views of Revelation that I will get into is soon future, future sermons that will come very soon. I think we're going to do um, some bigger picture of eschatology uh, in October. Um, and But I want us to kind of see what's going on here. With this, with this verse, why there's different views on what this verse means. I'm gonna give you a little, little quick overview. First, we have to ask ourselves, what, is, what does it mean by our trial? What does it mean by our trial? Now, some commentators who don't hold a futurist view of revelation, and what that means is that they believe revelation has already happened and already over, and we are now living in uh, I guess a millennial kingdom right now, and we're just waiting for Jesus to come back and bring us into the eternal kingdom. Those are two different things: millennial kingdom, eternal kingdom. Again, I'll get to that later. So and so they think that these this hour trial is talking about immediate trials that's going to happen in Philadelphia. And for these seven churches, there were indeed immediate trials that hit them right away soon after this letter is written. And so they think it's that. Now, others who hold that revelation, the events of revelation is happening now, believe that the hour trial is referring to the current persecution and tribulations that's falling upon the church today. We think about images such as the news we hear in Afghanistan, was how the Taliban is treating the church out there. And we think about this current hour trial. And so that's a particular view that's most likely held more by those who may be all millennial in their eschatology. Again, if you don't understand all that, we'll, we'll try to review the best we can to help you guys learn these things. Another view is that the hour trial refers not to an hour, but to the seven-year tribulation that's going to happen in the future. That the, the tribulation that we will see in chapter 6 to 19 that lasts for seven years in the future, the hour trial refers to that period of time. And that when it says here that Jesus will keep you from that, Jesus will protect the church from facing that seven-year tribulation. And then there's the view where the hour trial might refer to something a little bit more specific within that seven-year tribulation, specifically about this final judgment that may happen in there. Uh, for instance, one place it could happen, Revelation eleven thirteen says this. At, at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Maybe that hour is talking about this hour trial. Or it can be in Revelation eighteen ten, where it says, Alas, you great city, you mighty city of Babylon, for in a single hour... Your judgment has come. And this refers to the final judgment that will happen towards the end of the seven-year tribulation. So there's all these different views around it. And I would actually next week in our sermon, I'll be talking about the difference between the church and Israel, because that also plays hugely into how we interpret Revelation. And I'll try to use, I'll try to use that sermon next week to help show you then how do we refer to and understand this verse a little bit better.
um, by seeing the difference between church and Israel, or if they're the same thing. Again, I'll cover all that stuff next week. What I mainly want you to get away from this here in verse 10 is that Jesus' promise here is one that's great, one that's important, one that we must hold on to, that there is indeed a promise given to the church that they will be protected. And whether or not this is a physical protection where they're raptured away and they don't experience the seven-year tribulation, or it's a spiritual protection where their faith is secure and they won't fall away from their salvation, but yet they will still go through physical suffering. Whatever this means here, that Jesus, whatever Jesus here means, we know there's a protection for the church. And that protection will not fail. That protection is this, is this promise we can hold on to. Hold on to and trust in with our whole hearts. This is an assurance given to the church and it's unwavering. Jesus will not break his promise here. And so the church, us, us who believe in Jesus Christ, we will be protected and we will be guarded during this hour of trial, whatever this hour of trial may be. And that is a great joy and hope that we can cling on to. Moving on, the fourth promise given to us by Jesus is a grounded stability. A grounded st stability. And it says here in verse 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar, the temple, my God. Make him a pillar, and never shall he go. The pillar here represents strength, fortitude. There is something about a pillar that stands strong, that remains standing, that's unshakable. And the pillar of a temple, the pillar of a temple, at least when it's talked about, when it's talked about the, the temple in, in Israel back in the Old Testament, when they talk about the pillars, these pillars were usually on the outside facing out towards Others who view, take the outside look upon the temple, and they'll see these giant pillars, and they will know that this is where God dwelled. And so we see here that there is, there's an outward display of the presence of God. This represents to us, shows us, tells us that this temple, that this God who dwells here, he's mighty and he's strong. His presence is amongst his people. But here it says that we, church, will be the pillar of God's temple. Because the church indeed is the temple of God. And right? we, we learn that throughout the New Testament. We are the temple of God. Together, a community, as one body, we are the temple of God. And so the church here, saying that they're a pillar of this temple, becomes this unwavering temple that ushers the world to know who God is. This, and so we are to be an outpost to show everyone the truth about our God. We are to show them exactly what a conviction in that truth looks like. What does that conviction look like? Is your conviction in your God unwavering and uncompromising. 
Turn me to First Timothy. First Timothy chapter three. First Timothy chapter three, verse 15 to 16. We see here exactly how the church is to be a pillar of this great truth. Paul here writes, First Timothy chapter three. If I delay, you may know how one if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Now, what is this truth? Verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is great truth. And indeed, it is a mystery. It is a truth far beyond what we can comprehend. We only have a small glimpse of it. And yet it is so wonderful that we can do nothing else but proclaim it to the nations. We are to be a pillar in the buttress of this truth. What we see here is that the pillar of God's temple it isn't just this future promise, but it is an identity that we can put on now, today. We right now are being made into this pillar of truth to represent God to this world, to show them exactly what does it mean? What does it mean to know and follow the truth? What does it mean to follow Christ? which leads us to our final point, our unfading identity found in Christ. Our unfading identity back in Revelation chapter 3, verse 12, the rest of it. Jesus says here, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, my own new name. Jesus promises here, keep us forever. He's talking about possessing us, to hold us, to give us a name in the position of honor in this kingdom of his. Notice here the possessive pronoun that Jesus repeats over and over again using the word my. My God, this is my new name. And this is a city of my God. This, and this city comes down from my God out of heaven. Jesus here is showing you that he indeed is the only one who has access to this God. It is his God. And we come to know God through Christ. We have the key of David who opens the door for us. And so Jesus... Jesus here gives us this new identity. And we see here that Jesus gives us as well a new name, a name that belongs to him, his new name. And so we then are possessed by Christ. We belong to him. He owns us. When Jesus died for us and we submitted to him, proclaim him as Lord and Savior, we are saying, Jesus, take my life. It is yours. 
It says here that we are also the new Jerusalem. This indeed is our future. Revelation chapter 21, verse 2, says this. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What does that mean? What does it mean for a city to be prepared as a bride adorned for her husband? It means that the New Jerusalem, the city, is not just a location. It is the church. It is us because we are indeed the bride of Christ. Right? The New Jerusalem is not just a place, but it's a people. Right? This is amazing. Because we do indeed long for a future kingdom. We long for a new creation where God will recreate everything. And indeed, he will reestablish his throne here on earth. That all that physical realities is real. But the city is not just a city. It is also about us belonging to God, being his city, being his temple, being the bride of Christ. We are the new Jerusalem. And so the idea here is not simply that we were to enter into the new Jerusalem, but we are to be the kingdom of God. And even today, right now, in this present time, we are preparing the way for more and more people to join this kingdom, to be fellow citizens with us on this journey. Recognize that now our identity is with this new Jerusalem, but we are here right now on this earth as ambassadors of that new identity. Ambassadors laying the road, preparing the way for the coming King. And so Jesus Christ gives us that. Jesus Christ gives us this unfading identity, one that will last, etched in forever, for eternity. The big idea here is for us to hold fast to your convictions in God, which is grounded in the sure and unwavering promises of Jesus Christ, who permanently claims you as his unfading possession. This year, encompasses all the promises that Christ has given to us it is eternal, it's unwavering, it's sure, is grounded. And because those promises are given to us, we can hold fast to our conviction in Christ. And this is what it's all about. It's about this conviction deep down. Are you convicted that the Jesus Christ you come to serve, the Jesus Christ, the God of this church, the head of this church, the reason why you're here tonight in this room, in fellowship of wonder, in the name of Christ, is that name of Christ truly what you believe in? Is it what you're deeply convicted about, that this is the truth? This is what matters. I'm going to hold on to that. Two applications. First, conviction leads Christians to stand and proclaim the truth in the world today. It leads you to stand for it and to do nothing else but proclaim it because you know this is true. 
Let nothing else sway you. Let nothing else compromise your faith and your conviction is true. Right? The, the imagery here used here in Revelation 3, the, the, the imagery of an open door, right? Jesus opening the door for us. It's not just about our way to salvation, but it's open door for evangelism as well. Right, just as like Philadelphia here was this outpost for Greek Hellenistic ideas, Jesus Christ is showing the church, I am going to keep the door open for you to spread a gospel in this city. This door is open for us to continue to proclaim the truth to others. We are to be an outpost for the gospel. And so think about where you're at. Think about where you're at right now in your faith. Can you go on to your college campuses? And be like the Philadelphian church. Stand firm in the truth. To be a Christian on a secular campus, or even if you go to a Christian campus like Biola, like just think about whether or not can you stand for the truth because not everyone on that campus may be Christian, even if they claim they are. Can you be one who stands as a pillar of truth in the wave of the secular ideology and other religions out there? We are not to be swayed by the world's philosophies, but instead we are to be truth bearer, to test everything against that truth, which is found in the word of God alone. Second application. Conviction stabilizes Christians through their battle of doubt and fear. And I'm saying this because I know we will struggle with doubt and fear. I know we will. I struggle with this still. Every time I'll fall into sin, I wrestle with that doubt and fear. Because that's what sin do to us. It, it messes with our minds. And it, it messes with our hearts. And it causes us to doubt and fear about our salvation, about our security about our belief about our faith about god and so in a world where fear and doubt can easily seep into your mind can you stand firm on the conviction that jesus christ indeed is true indeed that he has his promises for you and you can do nothing else but to look upon these promises and just say god Thank you for being the one that holds me fast in the midst of my own weakness and sin, in the midst of this world that constantly pressures me to believe in something else. Thank you, God, for being the strength. Thank you, God, for holding that door open for us, for me. In a world where one culture battles another, where identities are fluid, where kingdoms rise and fall, Nations constantly in turmoil. The church identity in Christ remains permanent and stable. This, this is where we need to cling on to. Jesus has given us his promises. And this becomes our hope and joy. This becomes where we can go to when every time we struggle with our faith, every time we wrestle with our doubts, Jesus is sure he will look at you Say, remember, remember to take small steps. Repent of your sins. That's the God.
just a simple promise to us, and yet so powerful. So let us come then to Christ. Let us come to our God and come to know just what it means to know him, to know this Jesus who holds the key of David, who ushers us into the presence of God, this Christ who is indeed our Savior, this Christ who has given us this sure and steady anchor that will never let us go. Let's go to him now in prayer. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for your grace. That so honors you. That so, that so gives us such peace, such security, such pleasure and joy. Lord, let us continue to know Christ, our anchor, know Christ, who is our great high priest, who constantly intercedes on our behalf, who brings us to God, to his throne, to know you. Lord, thank you for giving us your son. But Lord, I pray right now that as we come to you to sing one last song to you, that we will do so with a heart that is secure in you, a heart that is hopeful and confident, a heart that's filled with joy that, God, you are our God and nothing can take us away. Thank you, Lord, for giving us such great confidence and joy. Let us then go to you. Let us come to honor you in all that we do. Let us worship you with our hearts. I pray all this in your name. Amen.